0: Hey, we're in Psalm 40 tonight. Uh, hopefully we're gonna go through Psalm 43. We'll see. As we look at it, it's kind of a a neat part as we work our way through the Psalms. Because we come to Psalm 40 and we're gonna start laying out some, uh, real guidelines for how to overcome, um, lamenting. So we, we have several Psalms of lament, uh, or Psalms of thanksgiving slash lament where people are going through the psalmist or uh, Asaph, the sons of Asaph are going through hard times, difficulties. They don't have all the answers. They don't understand everything that's going on. So so David and uh, or the other authors of the psalms we're going to look at tonight lay out for us some great concepts to help us understand how do I come out of a season of lament? How do I come out of uh, rough time? How do I come out of... Uh, um, times when I'm struggling in my faith or struggling with my walk and uh, in the very first verse of Psalm 40 lays it out for us Said, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry so the beginning the the one of the chief things that we're going to notice we work our way through these is this idea of perseverance and when we talk about perseverance I just want you to kind of kind of mold this sort of a definition over in your mind that perseverance in prayer expresses itself in a humble submission to God and longing for a new expression of his faithfulness. So perseverance in prayer expresses itself in humble submission to God and a longing for a new or fresh expression of God's faithfulness in your life. And when, when the psalmist declares in Psalm 40, I waited patiently. It means I'm going through a hard time. Things are rough. I'm, I'm having a hard time keeping my focus. And so, but my choice was to persevere and wait on the Lord, to put my hope in God. It's going to be a constant uh, um, expression as we work our way through these psalms. So, he said, I waited patiently. So here, in the beginning of this psalm, first three verses, we have the rescue. He's going to He's going to talk about the rescue that he received from God. He said, I waited patiently, which intimates for us that there's a long pause between the psalmist asking God for help and help coming. So he waited patiently, but in his waiting, he understood that, that God did several things. He inclined to me. He heard me. Verse two, he brought me up and set my feet on the rock. So you see four things that God did for him as he waited. All right. So as we just, just kind of look at it. He's waiting. The rescue comes. He's asking God, Lord, save me, be with me, help me out. So he inclined to me. That means God turned toward him. He heard my cry. It means God was listening to him. He brought me up out of a horrible pit. So when he's talking about the horrible pit, remember we're looking at Hebrew poetry. In Hebrew poetry, he's he's given us a metaphor, a simile, he's saying the experience that he was in was like a horrible pit, like being in the pits, being in, trapped in a place you couldn't get out of. So he said he brought me up. So God's lifting him out of that horrible pit, out of the miry clay. Those two things ought to bring to mind for the for the Bible student ought to bring to mind Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah comes many years later. We're not in the time of Jeremiah currently while the Psalms are being written, uh, especially Psalm 40. But as we look at it, remember Jeremiah, he's doing what God wanted him to do. And what did the people do with him? They threw him in a pit. And the bottom of the pit was mud. You remember what happened to him? He sinks. He sinks like to his armpits in mud. And he's trapped in this deep pit of miry clay. Same Kind of a picture, right? So so what he's talking about for us here in Psalm 40, just being depressed. David struggled with depression. I don't know where we got the idea in the church that people in the church should never have depression. Uh, Those were all people who never read the Psalms. Don't take you very long to go through the Psalms to see David depressed. But the point is, the key to coming out of his depression was his relationship with the Lord. Was waiting on him. And and being patient, perseverance, perseverance, right? Giving himself, submitting himself to the will of God. I am here because God has ordained that I should be in this place. But I don't believe God's going to keep me in this place. So I'm waiting for that fresh expression of the faithfulness of God to lift me out of the pit. And that's what equipped David, gave David hope. That expression of hope is we're going to see through all of these psalms as we work our way through. So he lifts him out of the miry clay. The final thing that God did for him, set his feet on the rock. At one point he's in mush, right? He he don't have no foundation. He he feels like he'd have nothing to stand on. But God lifts him out of the pit and puts his feet on a rock. Solid ground, he's got a place to stand. When we look through the Psalms and we look through, we know from 1 Corinthians 10 that the rock spoken of throughout the scriptures in the past at at 1 Corinthians 10 is all pointing to Christ. Christ is our rock. So he's saying he's taking my feet out of the miry clay, placing them on the rock. Jesus Christ, he's my rock, he's my stability, he's my strong tower, he's the anchor. So that's, that's where he's being anchored, to the rock. And he established my steps. That means now I know where I'm going. God lifted me up. God saved me. I had to wait patiently. But God lifted me up. God gave me the strength. God put me on the rocks and, and, he, and he gave me direction for my feet so I'd know where to go. And then he put a new song in my mouth. Verse three. See it? He put a new song. That word for new is not new like something you'd never heard before. That word new is a new for fresh. It's like his songs became fresh again. How they become fresh? Because he had a he had a real experience with God being with him, lifting him up, encouraging him, and it made what had become humdrum fresh again. Does that makes sense to you guys. So it's, it's it's making his expression of worship real. It's real. Not not that God doesn't give us new songs. Sure, He gives us new songs, but that's not what we talking about here. What he's talking about here is a fresh expression of worship as a result. And what did this fresh expression mean? He says, he put a new song in my mouth to praise our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. So, he's talking about going to praise God. All all the way through in the Psalms of Lament, you're going to see David start. He's going to express... Uh, in a moment, we'll even see some. He's gonna express some lament, some sorrow. Oh man, I'm, I'm feeling bummed. Things are hard. Life is difficult. Right? He, he, he expresses all of that. But then he gets his eyes on the Lord and he starts to talk about the magnificence of God and how big God is and how good God is. And it helps him take his eyes off of self and put his eyes on the one that's gonna deliver him. The one that's going to carry him through. And this is a key for David. C.S. Lewis said it like this. You will praise what you love. You will praise what you love. I can always tell if somebody loves their, uh, their football team. Because when football season comes around, they're talking about their football team all the time. I can tell somebody loves their spouse, loves their wife, or, or loves their husband. Why? Because when they have an opportunity, they're expressing how, how great they are, right? They're talking about how good they are and, and what, what they mean to them. Because what you love, you praise. And when you are loving God, that same thing, you, your life will break forth in spontaneous praise. You praise what you love. And so that's what David's doing. He's loving God because he has the rescue. Now in this next section from four, 4 and 5, he's going to focus on a reflection. He's going to look back to what God's done for him. Listen to what he says as he talks about God's protection. Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust. And does not respect the proud nor such as turn aside the lies. That reference to those who turn aside the lies is a reference to idol worship, turning away from God. So he says, How happy is a man who has his trust in the Lord and doesn't put his trust in false idols. Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works, which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Multiple places in the scripture talk about not being able to number the blessings of God. One of the encouraging things for us to help us when we're struggling in lament, when we're struggling in depression, being bummed, is to learn to count our blessings, the good things. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 4 that we are to meditate on the pure and the lovely, right? Not meditate on the garbage and the junk. But if we're honest, when we find ourselves in fits of depression or feeling low, what are we meditating on? The garbage, the bad, the broken stuff, the things that are coming against us. And I'm not going to tell you, don't do that. I'm going to tell you, take that and express that to God. But right after you express how you feel about all the things that are against you, then get your eyes on Him and express His majesty and beauty. And you'll discover the same thing David did. Because that's how he does the Psalms. Lord, this is how I feel. I'm not trying to, to hide it. This is how I feel. And these are my struggles. And this is what's going on. But then he puts his eyes on the Lord. And he says, you're so great. And you're so beautiful. And you're so mighty. And you've been there for us so many times. I can't even count them all. And it changes his attitude. It pulls him up. Pulls him out of that low feeling that he's going on. This is what he's declaring, God's protection over him in the past. So he starts with the rescue, the Lord lifted me up. Then he backs up and he says, man, and it all starts with me reflecting on what God's done in the past, how God's delivered me, how God's moved in my life. And then as he comes to verse 6, he moves toward a, an attitude of dedication. Look what he says, sacrifice an offering you did not desire. But my ears, you have opened. Now, when we look at that, I don't want you to see that as um, your, your ears are full of wax, so God stuck His finger in and got the wax out. You know, you don't hear me. So God's opening your ears. That's not the kind of opening He's talking about. Just hold your place here and go to Exodus twenty-one. Flip over to Exodus twenty-one, and in Exodus twenty-one. Um, in the law. It's also mentioned again for us in Deuteronomy. You'll see it there as well. <clears throat> but in Exodus 21, we'll pick it up about verse 5. He's talking about the law of servants, slaves. And in 21.5, he says, But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out free. So he's saying, Look, if the master, if the if the slave says of his master, I love it. I love my life here. I love my wife. You know, if a slave married another slave, he didn't really she wasn't his. That slave still belonged to the master for however long the period of time of slavery might be. Typically, Jewish slavery wasn't eternal; it was a fixed period of time, like indentured servitude that we see in our history, so it would have been a period of time, but if this slave said I don't want to go free. I like it here. I like how things work. I like what's going on. In verse 6, it says, I will not go out free. Then his master will bring him to the judges. And he shall bring him to the door, or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. And he shall serve him, what does it say? Forever. All time. Uh, the Bible has a phrase for that. It's called a bond servant. A bondservant, a slave by choice, a slave um, who wants to stay a slave for love. That's why when when the disciples describe themselves as bond servants, they're saying, "Man, I'm open my ear. I'm I'm yours." They would they would pierce their ear and they'd put a hoop And that hoop earring in their ear. Said that that person was a slave forever by choice. They had the freedom to make themselves slaves. Forever. So when we come back to the Psalms and he says, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, my ears you have opened. He's saying, I have chose to be a slave forever. That phrase, that Hebrew phrase for open can also be dug. My ears you dug out, you dug out, you pierced, you put a hole there. So I'm, I'm declaring myself a slave of choice. And when we come to this section of Psalm 40, it's kind of interesting Because all of a sudden we get very messianic. See, Isaiah begins to talk about someone called the suffering servant. The suffering servant is a view of the Messiah, the king, who would come, who would willingly make himself a slave for the people. That he would willingly die for the people, the suffering servant, the slave who would die for the people was something that Isaiah talked about, Isaiah spoke about. Let's, let's look at it, because as Isaiah begins to speak about it, around Isaiah uh, chapter 50, look over in Isaiah chapter 50. If you want to go there with me, you don't have to. You can hang on, I'm going to read it to you anyway. Isaiah 50, uh, picking it up about verse 4. Now this is a messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy about the Messiah. The coming prince, the fulfillment of a promise God made to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. And this is a picture of what he's going to look like. So that the people would uh, uh, be able to recognize when Messiah came. Look what it says, verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned... That I should know how to speak. So he's saying the Messiah is going to speak wisely. Still today, 2,000 years later, people are blown away by the things Jesus taught. The Sermon on the Mount all by itself, if all you did was spend the rest of your life studying the Sermon on the Mount, it's mind-blowing. There's no other teaching like it. But Isaiah in chapter 50 verse 4 says this is going to be a, a, a concept, a picture of Messiah. A word in season to him who is weary. So he's going he's to have just the right thing to say at the right time. Interesting, right? Good description of Christ. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. Then what does it say in verse 5? The Lord God has, same phrase, open my ear. The choosing of... The son of God to come as a slave. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8 says, Though he um, was in the form of, of God, he did not consider it Robert to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation and came in the likeness of a man. He, he, he who had one time filled the universe with his presence, now he confined himself to the body of a child, to a baby. There's a greater picture of moving from freedom to slavery. I don't know what it would be. That he had opened his ears. Now, I just want you to consider the description that Isaiah says. So I have opened my ears. So it's, the, it's a picture of Jesus saying to the Father, I'm a slave to you by choice. Submitted to, to, to the Father by choice. They're equal, but he submitted himself to the Father. What, he's going to the cross. So he says, you've opened my ear. He puts his, his ear on the doorpost. He opens his ear. Look what it says. And I was not rebellious. I'm going to do what you want me to do. I'm going to respond. The words that the Father gave him to speak, that's what he spoke, right? The deeds that the Father gave him to do, that's what he did, right? That's what the Bible describes him. Look what the very next phrase in verse 6 how it describes in Isaiah 50 how this suffering servant, this slave by choice, uh, reacted to what God had for him. I gave my back to those who struck me. By the way, that's past tense. You getcha? So when God's speaking it, he's saying, This is done. It was going to be, you know, a thousand years later after Isaiah before that would take place. But he speaks of it in the past tense. It's finished. It's done. Guaranteed will happen. I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. I have set my face like flint. Luke 9, 51. The Bible uses that exact phrase when Jesus turns toward Jerusalem. It says he set his face like flint. Headed to the cross. Headed to that time. And Psalm 40 in david's real life experience god uses him to speak words that are going to point to messiah the same thing messiah is going to do what do they call messiah isn't he called the son of david why is he called the son of david he's going to come he's going to come from the davidic line but david becomes a picture of christ not not that he's equal he's just a picture he's an illustration of some of the things Jesus is going to do. And so we read about it here in Psalm 40. My ear you have opened. He says, you don't want sacrifice and offering. Does God want our sacrifice? Did God want us to go kill animals? That was his goal? That's why he had a sacrificial system? Is the sacrificial system just because God's so blood thirsty, he wants to see blood flow? The sacrificial system all pointed to who? Messiah exactly what's going on here in psalm 40 look at me look to messiah look to the one who has done these things who has who has accomplished these things burnt offering and sin offering you did not require what does he require he does, he, he requires the death of the son what's the, what's the next phrase verse seven then i said behold i come it's not the offerings you didn't want the offerings those are pictures imperfect illustrations of a fulfillment of the suffering servant in jesus christ he says those things are imperfect illustrations and then it says you can hear the messiah's voice you hear his voice then i said behold i come in the scroll of the book it is written of me whole bible is about me it's about this sacrifice All the law, all the things that came before, from Genesis to Revelation, all talk about Christ, Messiah. It has one story. It's a miracle book. The Bible is no other book like the Bible. 66 books, 40 different authors written over a 1,500-year period of time from different countries. Yet one message, God redeeming man. There's no book like that. There's nothing even... Most other books are even even compared to it are written by one author, not forty different ones, who didn't talk to each other, who didn't hand a book to somebody and say, Hey, you write the next part. But they are men of God, chosen of God, to write scripture. And it finds its way to you and I in this form. Sixty-six books, forty authors, fifteen hundred years. Amazing. One story. How God redeems mankind, how God brings it all together. The book is about me. What, what, what? Specifically about Messiah, that I delight to do Your will, O oh, oh my God, and Your law is within my heart. So, as remember, as we look at, at where David's at, this is the dedication. His dedication, he's saying, you protected me, you rescued me, right? You came and saved me, you protected me countless times, so this is helping to lift me up. This is my dedication to you, God. What's his dedication? I delight to do your will. The Bible says that David was a man of integrity. Remember that phrase, integrity? It means singleness of purpose. One heart, not a divided heart. Saul was a divided heart, right? Right? Sometimes he wanted to follow God, sometimes he, he was thinking more about himself. Our goal to be a, men and women after God's own heart would be a man or woman without a divided heart, a single heart. What, what, how is our heart single? Our heart is single when, when the main crux desire of our heart is to do the will of God, to please him, to follow him. That we're following Jesus, that's it, he's central. Everything else branches from that one main truth. We want to cling and hold to that one main truth. So, to delight to do the will of God. And what did the 119th Psalm say? How do I keep myself from sin? How do I keep myself out of depression? How do I keep myself from struggling in a variety of different ways? Your law is within my heart. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Right? So, the word of God kept here keeps my heart single. One purpose. One purpose. To do the will of God. <laughs> this is his dedication. Then he gives the proclamation, the desire to proclaim what's going on. Look at verse 9. I have proclaimed the good news. You know that phrase. If we said that in Greek, how would it sound? Gospel. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips Oh Lord you yourself know I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart I have declared your faithfulness your salvation I have not concealed your loving kindness your ksed your it's a, it's a Hebrew equivalent to agape remember I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly what's it, what's the point what you love you praise you love God, singleness of purpose, I'm dedicated to Him, I'm counting my blessings, I'm remembering His salvation, how He lifts me out, what, what is the response i got to tell people? i got to tell people. If you have an, a unique experience, you tell people about it. Every woman who's ever given birth tells people about the birth experience. I don't know anybody who had a baby who never told nobody about it. If no other reason than to find somebody pregnant and tell them the nightmarish story of how horrible it was. Right? Don't we do that? To just try to... I don't know why we do that. Misery loves company. I don't do it because I don't have a pregnancy story. Course, Kathy does. I have Kathy stories, though. But we, the, our experiences, we like to share. If you have real experience with God... And you don't share them, I will say you don't have a real experience with God. If you have a real experience with God, you share it. Period. You got to tell. You got to tell people about what God has done for you. Just like you would tell somebody if you gave birth to a child. Just like you tell somebody when you won the championship game. Just like you tell somebody about the race that you came from behind and won. Whatever experiences you have in life that you really impacted you, you talk about. That's what David's saying, man. I proclaim it. I gotta have. I gotta proclaim. What's going on? But then in verse 11, he moves from proclamation and dedication, remember the protection and the rescue of God, to, to thinking about his sin. Do not withhold your tender mercy from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquity has overtaken me so that I am not able to look up. Remember, I told you, he's talking about being in depression. He's struggling, he's struggling with a humdrum of life. My iniquities have overtaken me, I can't look up. They are more than the hairs of my head, therefore my heart fails me. So as he looks to his sin, it's just see the picture in the, in the poetry. Picture Peter getting out of the boat, walking with Jesus. And then picture Peter looking at the waves, what happens? He's looking down, he starts to sink, right? Same thing, we start focusing on our sin and our failure and where we fall short, what's going to happen? You're going to sink, where are you sinking into? In the case of this story, the miry clay, that pit, you're going back into that pit, because your eyes are off of Jesus, your eyes are off of the Lord, your eyes are now on your sin. It's okay, we got to be honest and look at our sin, but what do we do with it? We repent, right? Confess it. Give it to the Lord and be raised up. Look how he speaks of his enemies in verse 13. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Let them be confounded because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha, that phrase. It's a Hebrew idiom. It's like, uh, neener, neener, neener. Remember when you were a kid and you pointed somebody, neener, neener, neener. It's the same concept. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a childish phrase about, I, I want to see you fail. I want to see you fall short. I want to see you uh, messed up. So he's got his eyes on his iniquities start to sink. He's thinking about his enemies, those who want him to fail. Right. All those things are going to pull him down. But in verse 16 and 17, he remembers, where does my help come from? Let all those who seek you, now he's looking to the Lord. He took his eyes off the enemies, took his eyes off his sin, put his eyes on the Lord, right? All those who seek you, rejoice and be glad in you. Our joy, our strength, our song, all the stuff he's been talking about is found when we have our eyes on the prize. That's Jesus Christ. Let such as love your salvation say continually the Lord be magnified. See where his focus went. Now I'm not sinking down in the pit. My eyes are on the Lord, uh, on him being magnified, glorified, exalted. He says, but I am poor and needy. He said, look, I'm not him. I'm, I'm still stuck down here. Yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. So in the midst of the depression, the things that want to pull him down, getting his eyes off the Lord, he recognizes my help comes from God. And he declares his help comes from God. And again, he asks, save me. And then you can go right back to verse 1. And I waited patiently, and the Lord delivered me. That's the cycle, man. Psalm 40 is the cycle of our walk with the Lord. Things are going to, the enemy's going to knock us down. The Proverbs say, a righteous man falls seven times in a day. That's a righteous man. What about us wicked guys? Maybe more. But he rises again, the Proverb says. He falls, but he rises again. He falls, but he rises again. Putting our eyes on the Lord and overcoming. We go on to Psalm 41. We have the final Psalm of Book One of Psalms. There's five books of the Psalms. You don't see them because they just numbered Psalm one to 150. But they're they're in the in the Hebrew Bible and the worship manual. They're they're divided into five books. The final book again. It's David, uh, beginning with an attitude of of uh, praise and blessing in adversity. Look what he says. Blessed is he who considers the poor. So we would call that mercy. Blessed is he who thinks about people who are less fortunate than him. Are you with me? It's going to be important in a minute. The Lord will deliver him in his time of trouble. Who's he going to deliver? Who's he talking about? The one who's being righteous, who's being merciful to those who are less fortunate. You You hear what he's saying? The Lord will deliver him out of time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive And he will be blessed on the earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sick bed. So he's talking about the one who has mercy. Blessed are the merciful. What's the scripture say? For they shall obtain mercy. Key to receiving mercy is learning to give mercy. Jesus told a a similar concept another way. If you want to be forgiven, what do you got to do? You got to forgive. You do not have the right, I don't care what anybody did to you, to withhold forgiveness since God has forgiven you. You you lost that right. You don't have it. Let it go. You are not the judge. God is the judge. Commit all judgment to God. Turn over that judgment to him and be free. If you want mercy from God, what do you got to be? Merciful. If you want forgiveness from God, what do you got to be? Forgiving. So we, we want to be able to express the things that we're asking for. To do the opposite is to be a hypocrite. To ask for forgiveness and withhold forgiveness. To ask for mercy and withhold mercy. So he begins oh, how happy is the guy who considers the poor, the guy lowering him, the guy who's going through hard times. He's showing mercy, he'll receive mercy. Verse 4, listen to what he says. Lord, be merciful to me. So he wants mercy from God. He's saying, I got to be merciful toward those who are less fortunate, to those who are struggling. We got to think about those things because we don't do that very well in in the United States of America. We look at people who are less fortunate and wonder what's broken on them. How that guy screwed his life up so much he ended up like that. And it might be true. But really, is that any different when God looks at you? Does he look at you and go, yeah, Jackie, you got it all together. All the other people on earth, they're screwed up. But you, you got it together. Or does God look at me and go, how in the world did you screw your life up so bad? So we want mercy. We give mercy. We have to be merciful. Heal my soul, he asked For I have sinned against you. So David's in a low place. I'm struggling. I want God's mercy. i got to remember to be merciful. I want him to heal my soul. The word soul is is like the word for life. Fix my life is what David's saying. Fix my life because my life is all messed up. Fix it. I need you to fix my life, God. I need you to fix where I'm at. He says, my enemies speak evil of me. So what do his enemies say? When will he die and his name perish? (laughs) Man, he's like, people are are holding secret meetings, devising my doom. When is this guy going to die already so we can go in a new direction? So David says, this is my enemies, but I want you to be. It says, and if he comes to see me, he's talking about his enemies, he speaks lies. And his heart gathers iniquity to itself. So his heart is full of sin. And he goes out and he tells it. He's talking about gossiping. He's talking about telling stories, telling lies, being a talebearer. bearer. He says, all who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Oh, we can't wait till David dies. So probably at this time in David's life, he's sick. And the the word on the street from people is, finally, this this guy should never have lived as long as he's lived. God needs to to take him down. But David's reminding himself, got to be merciful. I got to have mercy for those who are less fortunate than me because I want God's mercy in my life. I want God to fix my life, to to lift me up again. In fact, in verse 9, he says, even my own familiar friend in whom i trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me so probably in this particular time in david's life he's dealing with the the rebellion of absalom and his own familiar friend is ahithophel ahithophel was david's premium counselor his primary wise man that he went to for advice <clears throat> and when ahithophel the first chance ahithophel got to turn against david he did you know why Ahithophel had a granddaughter, was married to a mighty man of David, a faithful warrior for David named Uriah the Hittite. And Ahithophel's granddaughter was wooed by the king and committed adultery, got pregnant, and the king killed Uriah. And Ahithophel was none too happy about it. So that comes back around. But you know what else is interesting about this verse? It gets quoted in the New Testament. That verse in Psalms, My familiar friend has lifted his heel. Who do you think used it in the New Testament and to whom did he use it? Or about whom? Yeah, Jesus is going to use it about who? Judas. The one who broke bread with me. The one who's, who's been with me. My familiar friend. He's lifted up his heel. It's a it's a word of, of, of coming against, violently coming against somebody. But then in verse 10, you see the word but. Anytime you see the word but in the Bible, it means strong contrast. Now we're turning. He's looking at his enemies and considering all his problems and his illness and the desire that he has for mercy. But what's he say? But you, O oh Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up. Not like these enemies, not like these guys who want to tear me down. God, you be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. Lift me up, that I may repay them. That I may repay them. He doesn't want his enemies to win. He wants the name of God to go forward. David's not concerned about his reputation. He could care less. David's issue is not... If David's issue was his reputation, when he left Jerusalem and Shimei was over there cursing him... And Abishai, his number one right-hand guy, said, let me go cut that guy's head off. David would have said, yeah, go cut his head off. I'm tired of hearing him backtalk me. But you remember what David said about Shimei? He says this, leave him alone. Leave him alone. It's like God speaking to me through him. Of all the dumb stuff I'd done that brought this on myself. I need God to be merciful to me I want God to lift me up by this I know that you are well pleased with me because my enemy does not triumph over me ultimately did Absalom win no was it a hard time for David yes but did God carry him through it yes he says I know you are pleased with me because he didn't triumph as for me you uphold me in my integrity the singleness of heart the attitude that God wants us to have. God is central in our life. And you set, and set me before your face forever. David's saying, because I have you central, you're the main thing in my life. I know that I'm always before your face. Isn't that an important thing to know as we go through the struggles of life? That, that God always sees me. Why does he always see me? Cause I, I'm standing right there in the middle looking at him. He's always going to see me. I'm always before your face. And then it moves to the benediction. Verse 13 is the benediction. It moves us from book one into, into book two. You always know the benediction because of the double amen at the end. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Book one's over. We move into book two. From everlasting to everlasting is a unique Hebrew a figure of speech. It means from the vanishing point to the vanishing point. the The picture in the Hebrew mind was: I can only remember back backwards so far. You know, some people tell you they remember when they're three; they remember when you're. I'm lucky if I remember when I was forty, which is a lot further behind me than I ever imagined possible. So he says the Hebrew idea from everlasting is to the vanishing point and beyond. And then forward to the vanishing point, as far forward as I can look, and then beyond. From everlasting to everlasting. It's a Hebrew figure of speech for eternal. As far back and beyond, as far forward and beyond, God is eternal. He goes on forever and ever. Now, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 ought to go together. They're a single song of lament. You're going to recognize the same course. Jackie, why do you say they go together? You'll figure it out when we get there. But it's got the same, it's like, if I put two songs and they had the same chorus, you would say, oh, those are the same song. Now, it doesn't mean they were sung together all the time. Just like today, sometimes we'll, you'll see people that will update an old hymn and slightly change it, same chorus, but it's a little bit different. That's why they're divided, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. But the system is the same. You're going to have a lament followed by a statement of hope. A lament, Followed by a statement of hope four times, four verses, four choruses, two psalms. You with me? You will be, I think, or you won't. He begins the initial part of his lament: "As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul after you." All we we remember this song, right? Yeah, see, it come right to you, didn't it? So, what's the point? What's his lament? He's saying, he's lamenting how much he longs for God. Man, I, I want you as bad as a deer wants water. I want you as much as a hungry man wants a big turkey dinner. Same difference. The point is the desire. Whatever the desire is, he's saying, You are my desire, my appetite. I have an appetite for God. As the deer pants, so pants my soul. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come before and appear before God? For my tears have been my food night and day, while they, his enemies, while they continually say to me, where is your God? The taunt of the enemy. Where's your God? Where's your God? Where's your God? He says, man, I want you so bad. God, I want you so bad. I want to be with you. How long is it going to be before I am going to be with you? That's the cry Of David, his lament, his cry. But then we move uh, in verse 4. He says, when I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. His life is a picture of his life being poured out like a drink offering. I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go with a multitude. I went with them to the house of God and with a voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept the pilgrim feasts we're talking about exile this is not written by david it says to the chief musician a contemplation of the sons of korah it's while they're in captivity and they're saying man lord i want you i want to be with you i want to be with you so bad but i'm stuck in this foreign land i used to be able to go down to the temple and participate in the feast, but I can't do that no more. And the people in the land which we're stuck now are laughing at us and saying, Where is your God? His lament. His lament, crying out, Oh Lord, where are you, God? Where are you? Are you are you here with me? And then verse five is we come to the chorus of the Psalm. Why are you cast down, O my soul? He asked his own question. Why? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him. I'm stuck in exile and I'm in a land I don't understand. People talking in languages I don't understand. But I will be in your presence. He's longing to be in God's presence, right? The context of each verse is going to tell you What the hope for God is. This particular hope in God. Hope in God. I will yet praise you. I'm going to be in your presence. I'm going to be like a deer pants for the water. I'm going to be with you one day. I'm going to be with you. Down in the in the bottom of of your pain and your sorrow. And I'm not where I want to be. I wish I was somewhere else. I wish all these pieces came together in a different way. But here I am in this place. What's the cure for it? Hope in God. I'm going to be in your presence. The day will come when you will call me to yourself. I will be with you. He says, and there I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I will be with you. So we have this, this promise, his hope in God. For I shall yet praise him for for the help of his countenance, his face. His presence. I will hope in him, the help of his presence. Then we move to the next verse of the Psalm in his next lament. Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from the hill of Mizar. He's thinking about all the places back home. He's stuck in a place of exile. Probably in Babylon. And he's thinking about the beauty of being home. Be just like a guy who's on deployment. Exile will be just like deployment. You're out in the middle of the Iraqi desert. Looking at sand as far as you can see. Sand, sand, sand. Every day you're worried about whether you're going to get through that day. Or somebody's going to blow you up with a dead cat. And so you're looking at all that stuff. You're thinking, man, oh. Gosh, I wish I was in pine right now. Sitting alongside the south fork of the Boise. Fishing pole in my hand. Trout wiggling on the end of the line. Getting a little bit warm. Think I'm going to jump in and take a little swim. He's doing the same thing from Babylon. only he says, "I, I wish I was at the Jordan. What's the Jordan? It's a little river. I wish I was there where the plains... Of the Jordan, where the Jordan River runs through, from the heights of Mount Hermon, at the mountain. Mount Hermon's a mountain, it's the only mountain, or one of the mountains in Israel that has snow on it all year. And from the hill, Mazar. He's saying, man, I wish I was in those places, those old, familiar places. He's missing home. He says, deep calls unto deep, at the noise of your waterfalls, all your waves And billows have gone over me. So the picture is, he's painting another poetic picture, right? I'm longing for home and I feel like I'm drowning. Deep calls unto deep. I'm being pushed down by the waterfall. I'm being covered over by the waves. I'm longing for breath. I'm longing to go home. I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to be in this place. I'm in a place I don't want to be. Your waves have covered me. I'm drowning in sorrow and pain and a place I don't want to be. But then he moves to the chorus. To his hope. But the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And in the night his song shall be with me. A prayer to the God of my life. So as he looks to the Lord now for hope. He quotes God's covenantal name. He says Yahweh. Capital L-O-R-D. Uh, he says the Lord, Yahweh will command his loving kindness. What's he hoping in now? The love of God. The love of God. He is hoping for God's presence. Now he's hoping in God's love. And what, what is God going to give you? He's going he's to give you command his loving kindness in the daytime. And then the nighttime he's going to give you a song. Where are they now? In this, after this chorus, he's in the nighttime. Sorrow comes in the evening, but joy comes in the morning. The point is, your mourning, your suffering, your lament is not permanent. It will pass. And God will give you a song in the night. He'll give you something to sing, something to hold on to, uh, because He loves you. Because He loves you. That's right. He loves you, and He's going to carry, He's going to give you what you need to get through it. So we cling to Him, we hold to Him, we grab a hold of what God has for us, and we hope in His love. In the daytime, His love at nighttime, in the dark times, he gives us a song. So this is the second chorus. Then um, we uh, uh, move to the next lament. Remember first who God is, though, before you start asking questions. He's going to start doing that in the, in the verses. He's going to remember who God is, and then he's going to ask a question. What's he say? I will say to God my rock. So he's got, i got some questions that I need to ask God. But before he throws the questions out, he's going to remember who God is. He's going to do that every time he has questions for God. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Remember that phrase. So again, their enemies that are around him, saying, "Where is your God?" And he's saying, "Lord, why have you forgotten me? How long are they in captivity? Seventy years. How come they're in captivity for seventy years? Because for four hundred and ninety years they never gave the land at Sabbath rest. Every seven years, six years, God said, "I'll give you. I'll give." Through the land, everything you need. On the sixth year, I'll give you double. On the seventh year, don't work the land. On the sixth year, they got double. On the seventh year, that's all profit, man. Let's make some money. They never gave the land rest. 490 years. Every seventh year was supposed to be a year of rest, which means how many years were they going to serve in captivity? 70 all those numbers sound familiar to you? God, how many times should I forgive someone for the same offense? Which equals? 490. Interesting, right? I'm sure it's just coincidence that it's the same as the amount of years that the children of Israel did the same sin. And God forgave them over and over and over. So I always say, as soon as you have forgiven someone for the same thing for 490 years, you can require something. Oh, that's going to be a problem for us, right? Most of us are not going to make it 490 years. So then you're going to forgive them all the time, right? So, anyways, he says, he says, how long we're here? Have you forgotten us? Did God forget them? No. God's still with them. He still. He told them when they went to Babylon, "Go live life, have families, build your homes. One day, I'm going to take you back." So he hadn't forgot them, but that's how he feels. He feels like I've forgotten him, but he remembers that God's his rock. So verse 11 is the chorus. Remember, we're coming back to the chorus. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Does that sound familiar? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. Now in context, what is the hope of God in this section? The hope of God is this is not the way it's going to end. I don't end here. I will not end in exile. Just so you guys know, you're all in exile. You don't know that? You are in enemy territory. This place is not your home. You were not made for this place. C.S. Lewis said, If I look around and find on this world nothing that satisfies me, I can only come to one conclusion. I was not made for here. It's not my home. My home is to be with Christ." I'm in exile. Is it eternal? No. The day will come when I will be with Jesus Christ. The day will come when I will be with Jesus Christ. This is not how it ends. No matter how low, no matter what pit, no matter what miry clay, this is not how it ends. It ends in glory. It ends in beauty and majesty. It ends with a hug thrown around your shoulders and a loving Savior laughing in your ear and saying, Well done, Well done, welcome home. That's how it ends. This is not how it ends. Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him. I shall. Yeah, praise. And then we come to forty-three. <clears throat> remember, I told you it, it, it's going to continue. Look how it continues. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation, or deliver me from the deceitful and the unjust. Now he's going to. He's got a question for God, so he's going to. Uh, he's going to remember who God is. Look, for you are the God of my strength. So before I ask the questions, you are the God of my strength. You are. You God are my rock. You are the God of my strength. Look at his questions. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? I'll send your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill. See, he's mourning. I want to go to the temple. I want to see the temple. Where's the temple? It's a heap. It's a pile. It's destroyed. Solomon's temple's gone. They're going to go back and, and rebuild this Weak sauce looking temple there in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. He says, I want to see that again. I want to see that. I want to see that place, your presence, where you are. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. What is he longing to do? Then I will go to the altar of God. What did the altar of God at the tabernacle speak of? It spoke of the cross. Where do we all start a relationship with God? Same place. If the, in the Old Testament, you started with the altar. In the New Testament, you started at the cross. Both were the place of death. The death of the sacrifice for your sin. Man, he's saying, I, I want to I get there. I want to be in your presence. I want to go to the altar where I can offer up my sacrifice to God, who is God, my exceeding joy. And on the harp, I will praise you, O oh God, my God. He said, man, I want to go there. I don't want to be here no more. Why am I still here? ever felt that way why am i still in this place why am i still struggling with this thing and the key to coming through it is the same he's going to sing the chorus see if you recognize it why are you cast down O my soul and why are you disquieted within me sound familiar Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and of my God. What's he hoping for here by context? Direction. Revelation. What's he asking him for? Light and truth. Where's your light and truth to lead me to the place you want me to be? I want to be where you want me to be, so I'm going to hope in God. You're going to show me the way. You're going to give me your light your truth, your revelation. I need your direction. So we look at those two psalms, those two laments. He's saying, man, I, I need you. I want your presence. I'm going to hope in your presence. I'm going to hope in your presence. I'm going to hope in your love. I'm going to hope in the, in the fact that you love me, that you're with me, that you're for me, that you're not against me, that you're going to work through me in all that you do. I'm going to hope in the fact that this is not how the story ends. I'm going to hope in the fact that you're going to give me your light, your truth, your revelation. That's the key to get out of lament. To hope in God. For I will yet praise you. That's not the last chapter. There's more to be written in your story and mine. And whatever is going on in your story currently, God wants you to know. Hope in him. For you will yet praise him. You may not feel like praising now, but you will yet praise him. It's always darkest before the dawn. And when that light comes, it'll never be dark again. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.